welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm excited to be on the air this morning talking to you. We're actually going to be talking about a topic that I've never discussed on this show in detail. It's something that I've thought about for many years, and it's something that I've been interested in and read about, but it's not something that I've given a whole show to. It has come up briefly, as I've discussed various other topics in the past, but it's never been given the attention that I think it deserves. And it's something that I think all of us think about, and it's something that no doubt you've had questions about. If you've ever thought about God, about eternity, about the Christian message, or even more vague terms, if you've ever even just thought of what comes after this life, this show will be relevant to you. The topic that I'm excited to talk about, I'm not going to leave you hanging any longer, is the topic of God's relationship to time. And it's an exciting topic, and it's a topic that has created a lot of confusion over the centuries. In fact, a lot of different people have taken up very intense positions on either side of the spectrum concerning this topic. And I think that there is a middle ground that is more appropriate and that holds better to the data, both the biblical data and the scientific data. And I'm going to discuss it all today. I'm going to discuss the philosophy a bit. I'm going to discuss the science. I'm going to discuss the biblical data. And we're going to see how God relates to time and how that impacts so many other related issues. And there are so many issues that are dependent on that issue, on God's relationship to time. So this isn't a small issue. It's not just a side issue. This is a very big issue. God's very nature, the freedom of individuals, the direction of history, all of these things relate to the view of how God relates to time. And so it's going to be a fascinating subject to dive into. C.S. Lewis describes common assumptions about God and time, stating, We tend to assume that the whole universe and God himself are always moving on from past to future, just as we do. That assumption has gotten many people into a lot of trouble over the years. And that's the assumption that we're going to challenge in this morning's show. Again, his statement, we tend to assume that the whole universe and God himself are always moving on from past to future just as we do. C.S. Lewis didn't believe that, but he prefaced an incredible discussion of this topic with that statement. You can find his discussion of that topic in Mere Christianity, Book 4, Chapter 3. I'll cite that again so that you can read it on your own. But for now, it's important to know that that is not the case. God is not always moving on from past to future just as we do. God is greater than and superior to outside of time as we know it. He created time along with the rest of the physical world, and he therefore supersedes it. A lot of times we hear crazy questions. Questions like, can God create a rock so big that even he can't pick it up? And some people might say, oh, that's a stupid question. Don't ask that. Well, I think that's a cheap way to get out of answering that question. The reality is, is that question assumes that God is subject to the law of gravity. Can God create a stone or a rock so large that even he can't pick it up? Well, that assumes that weight bears upon God, that he is subject to the law of gravity, which he created. 
As the creator, he is not subject to the laws that he himself created, nor is he subject to the natural conditions that he himself created. So he's not subject to gravity. So the question is, in a sense, a redundant or a ridiculous question. It is not a question that makes any kind of sense whatsoever because God is not subject to the law of gravity. Now, it's the same thing when we come to time. People might ask, does God foreknow the future? And if so, how am I free? And if not, how is he sovereign? Well, these questions presuppose God being subject to time. Well, time is something that he created, and it's something that is a part of the physical universe, and he is not subject to it, but rather superior to it. So that will be relevant as we jump into the issue today. So how the issue of God's relationship to time impacts other issues? Well, it impacts the view of God's sovereignty. God, by definition, must be sovereign. And how do perspectives of God and time relate to that fundamental issue? That is important for us to consider. Similarly, how does it impact the issue of free will and the contradictory version of determinism? Do we have free will or not? Are all things determined or not? Are humans free? Yes, humans are free. Scripture throughout describes that reality. But our freedom only exists within the spectrum of God's sovereignty, and his sovereignty is only magnified by the fact that in our freedom we can't screw up his sovereignty. We could never supplant God's global purposes. We do have freedom to choose concerning our own submission to or rejection of him. But that is a far thing from actually being able to overthrow him in his control of the universe. As Craig and Moreland articulate, when we understand that God timelessly knows the things he knows and that his knowledge of something does not cause that thing to happen, then we have the resources for dealing with the problem. There is no fundamental contradiction between human free will and God's quote-unquote foreknowledge. This is not a contradiction. So is everything determined? Strict determinism holds that God causes everything that happens, making him ultimately responsible for sin and evil, and, as Olson would argue, indistinguishable from Satan. Now, that's an incredible charge to level against that view of God, but Olson, I believe, is correct in arguing that strict determinism makes God indistinguishable from Satan, and it makes God the author of evil and sin. That's why scripture is clear that strict determinism is not the case. So how does this all relate to the problem of evil? Well, I once had a debate with an atheist here on campus, and the whole week leading up to the debate, he kept challenging me. How can you believe in a good, all-powerful God? I'm going to get you on that question. And in the debate, he tried to say that if God is good and all-powerful, he would not allow evil on this planet. That's the traditional problem of evil. We've all heard it many times. The problem with that problem, and I discussed this in the debate, is that God is outside of time. And in such a situation, God has allowed us to make real choices with real evil consequences inside of time. And he Similarly, outside of time and superior to time is able to work all things towards his final will. I can sin, others can sin, Satan can do evil, yet God can 
bring all this together, it tells us in Romans 8.28, for his good and for our good, according to his purposes. That's something that we have to remember. So the problem of evil is impacted by this consideration and by this debate. What about personal responsibility? Is it important that we obey God? If everything is determined, then I have no choice whether or not to obey God. So nobody should ever teach or preach or encourage anybody to obey God. If strict determinism is true, then there's no reason to try to be obedient because all that is and all that happens is determined. That's not the case. Prayer really does have an effect. Evangelism really does have an effect. We really should obey God. We really should be loving and altruistic. Those actions and behaviors have real consequences in time and eternity. That's a biblical truth, and it's a reality of the physical universe. So what about time? It's important to kind of define the concept because it's never really been accurately defined. That's the funny thing. If you look for a definition for time, you'll come up empty-handed more often than not. I remember William Lane Craig in Time and Eternity describing one definition of time saying that it's what keeps everything from happening all at once. That's probably as good a definition as you'll find. It's kind of funny. Many people have said that time is basically just entropy happening. There are many other ways to look at time. The reality, though, is that it's a big question mark in many ways. It is a part of the physical universe. You've probably heard of the time-space continuum. Time is related to and connected to the physical material universe. We know that from science. And God is, by definition, as I said before, creator of the whole universe. And as creator, he stands outside of or superior to time. I'm not saying that he can't relate to us in time. He does do that, but he is superior to time and not subject to time. He controls time. He is the God of and over time. God is not confined to the rules of the natural world he created, as I described previously. He is superior to them, and we can't subject him to his creation. It's important that as we consider this, we look at some insights from science. And I would ask you to bear with me here because it'll get a little scientific or a little wordy. If you don't understand what I'm saying, just be patient because we'll get through it soon enough. Anyway, bear with me. Newtonian physics would seem to imply determinism. Newtonian physics being the physics of the several hundred years before Einstein. But quantum mechanics and the theory of relativity, which began with Einstein open the door for true indeterminism. In other words, if Newtonian physics were all that was, then determinism would be empirically verified, it seems. We know, though, that there's more than just Newtonian physics. We know that there are quantum mechanics and quantum physics, and that in such a scenario, there is opportunity for indeterminism, for free choice, if you will. And it's important that we kind of delve into this a little bit because the science, I think, needs to be considered on this topic. So as we talk about the theory of relativity, it's important to discuss the two main areas of that theory, the special theory of relativity and the general theory of relativity. Well, 
This special theory of relativity will be discussed first. Newtonian physics long posited absolute time and space. That seemed to be undone by Einstein's special theory of relativity and its plethora of unprivileged inertial frames, leaving Einstein to reject any view of absolute time or space. Such a view leads to what has been described as eternalism. There is no real past, present, or future. They are all coexistent in time. We only see them based on our position in time. So I see the past as past, the present as present, and the future as future based on my place in time. But according to eternalism, the past, the present, and the future all coexist simultaneously. That seems to be implied, if not proven, by Einstein's special theory of relativity. Marcus Arvin notes, insofar as special relativity arguably entails that all reference points are equally valid, it is possible, at least in principle, to observe the world from any frame of reference in space-time. The past, the present, and future, in some sense, must exist, since there is always a reference frame from which each can be viewed as present. This is basically what Lewis described as the eternal now. We'll get to more of what Lewis says later. Eternalism is compatible with traditional theories of God observing time from outside it. What Simons refers to as the classical position on eternity in Western theistic thought. Aquinas described this concept stating God's vision is measured by eternity, which is all at once. Consequently, all times and everything done in them is subject to his sight. This is similar to the view of Anselm, which Jeffrey Green and Catherine Rogers describe, stating all the moments of time, or the entire duration of time, have the same ontological status, and what we call the past, present, and future are relative to a given perceiver at a given time. God, the ideal knower, who sees things as they are, sees all times just there, in one act of knowing. I think they hit the nail on the head with that description. They continue describing a, quote, isotemporal view of God and time. They clarify what from our temporal perspective is now and what from our temporal perspective is some future moment are both immediately there, equally present to God. That is a way of looking at the data specifically from the perspective of Einstein's special theory of relativity. Einstein's general theory of relativity may be changing that a bit. William Lane Craig explains that GTR, through its cosmological applications, appears to give back what STR had removed, namely the view of cosmic time. This view would entail a Newtonian absolute time from which God observes all human events in relative time. Craig explains that the evidence for cosmic time is strong and that cosmic time relates to these observers and that their local times all coincide with cosmic time in their vicinity. This would indeed change the way God interacts with time compared to STR, but it would not limit his ability to know all relative time from the perspective of absolute time. As Craig stated, God is not timeless, but eternal, existing at all times. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR 91.9 and 93.9 FM here in Durango and KDUR.org online. We're talking about God's relationship to time. I've just discussed a little bit of the science, specifically how Einstein's special theory of relativity and general theory of relativity relate to the issue of 
time and God's relationship to time. And whether STR or GTR better describe time, God supersedes time either way. This is logical since time is a part of the physical universe that God created. Remember, we've stated this several times. God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1-1, and as creator of the material universe, including time, he supersedes it. As David Woodruff writes, if space-time is understood to be a complete whole, and God, the creator of space-time, is not a part of space-time, then God would be outside of the continuum and outside time. God knows what is to me past and what is to me present and what is to me future with equal clarity and as equally real and occurring. How exactly God could be outside the continuum and yet have knowledge of it is difficult to work out. However, given that God could know anything of what is internal to space-time, there would seem to be no barrier to God knowing all of it and thus having what appears to me to be exhaustive, definite foreknowledge. Whatever one's view of time, God is not constrained by it, nor is his knowledge of it temporally limited. Science seems to be finally catching up with the eternal picture of God that the Bible has held for millennia. So let's look briefly at what the Bible says about God and his relationship to time. Throughout scripture, we read that God is eternal. One example is Romans 16.26. That's different than timeless but it does constitute being superior to time. He is eternal. He has no beginning nor end. He created time, and he is superior to time. In Genesis 1-1, again, we read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So God created everything that is, including time. He supersedes it, again. We also read many times throughout Scripture, over and over and over, that God stretches out the heavens, that he is continually stretching out the universe. We see this physical reality, and there are many references to this in the Bible, Job 9.8, Psalm 104.2, Isaiah 40.22, Zechariah 12.1, those are just a few. But this continues to show us that God is greater than the physical universe, and that as the physical universe continues to expand, he is in charge of it. Psalm 90, verse 4 says, for a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. We see that verse paralleled in 2 Peter 3, 8, which says, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Because God is outside of time, he sees all time concurrently. And both those verses show us that time is relative to God. Not to us, but to him it is. He is superior to it. When I say relative... I don't mean it in a relativistic type of way, but rather he is superior to it. What I see as the past, the present, and the future are not so to him. They are all one to him. They're all concurrent to him. He sees them all concurrently. Because God is outside of time, he sees all these things concurrently. This is what the Bible terms foreknowledge. We see throughout scripture this term foreknowledge, and we can look at that as an anthropomorphism writing for our own understanding. It isn't that God foresees or foreknows because that would be putting him into time. As far as I can relate to God, God foreknows my future as well as everyone's future. But as far as God is, 
in his own identity, he sees it all concurrently. So there is no foreknowledge implying that he is in time. Rather, there is complete knowledge, eternal knowledge of all things, of all times, of all places. So you could look at some of these foreknowledge references as anthropomorphisms, also recognizing that they tell us the truth about God and his relationship to time, that he is completely sovereign over all of it. This is why we see so many fulfilled prophecies in Scripture. Isaiah 46.10 says, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. He knows it all. And Craig notes, a literal reading of the biblical texts gives the overriding impression that God is eternal in the sense of existing at all times, not in the sense of being timeless. God is able to relate to humans in time while simultaneously remaining superior over all time. Some people have taken this to extremes. The extreme Calvinists have tried to say that God in his eternality determines everything and that no one has freedom and that all sin and evil and all good is all caused by God. That's probably an overstatement, but it's definitely what their beliefs would imply. That's extreme Calvinism, which I think is an extreme. Similarly, we have extreme Arminianism, which claims that humans have ultimate free will and God ultimately isn't quite as sovereign as one might think that he is. That would probably be more of an open theist perspective. It's doubtful whether traditional Arminians would hold that perspective. But either way, it's as ridiculous as the other side of the spectrum. The bottom line is that somewhere in the middle, we see a God who is sovereign, who gives real free will to real people, who is in a sense, outside of time, who is superior over time and able to see it all as it occurs. What this means practically, I think as we narrow this down, it's important to go back to C.S. Lewis because he describes this so articulately and we can't get it much clearer than he gets it. So I'm just going to kind of read to you from Mere Christianity and how C.S. Lewis describes this whole thing. C.S. Lewis describes time as a line, and then he writes, God, from above or outside or all around, contains the whole line and sees it all. He clarifies, if you picture time as a straight line along which we have to travel, then you must picture God as the whole page on which the line is drawn. We come to the parts of the line one by one. We have to leave A behind before we get to B and cannot reach C until we leave B behind. God, from above or outside or all around, contains the whole line and sees it all. This fundamentally dissolves the supposed contradiction between God's foreknowledge and man's free will. In Lewis's thinking, this view of God is both compatible with and necessitated by his sovereignty. He explains, God has no history. He is too completely and utterly real to have one. For, of course, to have a history means losing part of your reality because it has already slipped away into the past and not yet having another part because it still is in the future. In fact, having nothing but the tiny little present, which has gone by before you can speak about it. God forbid that we should think of God like that. Lewis argues convincingly that God's eternality and corresponding quote-unquote foreknowledge is inseparable from his sovereignty and that both are compatible with human free will. He continues writing, Every moment from the beginning of the world is always the present for him, what he called the eternal now for God. He concludes, He does not remember you doing things yesterday. He simply sees you doing them. Because though you have lost yesterday, he has not. 
He does not foresee you doing things tomorrow. He simply sees you doing them. Because though tomorrow is not there for you, it is for him. You never supposed that your actions at this moment were any less free because God knows what you are doing. Well, he knows your tomorrow's actions in just the same way because he is already in tomorrow and can simply watch you. In a sense, he does not know your action till you have done it. But then the moment at which you have done it, it is already now for him. In other words, you have total free will and God totally sees all your free actions outside of what you know as past, present, and future. God sovereignly guides humans in history without violating their freedom, accomplishing his purposes. This has incredible ramifications on the problem of evil as well. God is all good and he is all powerful and he allows humans and Satan to freely do very bad things that hurt people. That's where evil comes from. The absence of God's goodness in nature acted out by sinful human beings. But God in his sovereignty came to save us from that. And he, in his sovereignty, is directing all history towards his purposes in spite of our sin and evil. If you want to learn more about this topic, I would suggest a few books. Pick up Time and Eternity, Exploring God's Relationship to Time by William Lane Craig. You should also read Mere Christianity. The whole book is great, but specifically read Book 4, Chapter 3, titled Time and Beyond Time. It deals a lot with this. I would also suggest Against Calvinism by Roger E. Olson. He describes the problems with extreme Calvinism and extreme determinism. He describes it from a logical perspective, from a biblical perspective, and he does a very good job showing why your free will really does matter. Finally, for the other side of the spectrum, I would encourage you to read Contending with Christianity's Critics. Again, the whole thing is great. It's compiled by William Lane Craig. But see specifically chapter 18 for a rebuttal of open theism, the opposite side of the spectrum from extreme Calvinism. So what does this mean for you? You really do have a free will, and you really will be responsible before God for the choices that you make in this life. God is working within history to accomplish his will. That includes his desire that all would be saved and that none would perish. But he will respect your choice. He has been using every event of your life, even those events which he did not ordain for you. For example, the results of others' sin against you and the effects of your own sin as well. He's used all of it, even what he didn't ordain, to draw you to himself. Romans 2.4 tells us that God's kindness leads you towards repentance. He's calling you this morning. He tells you that he has loved you with an everlasting love from all of eternity he saw you today and he loved you today. And nothing that you've ever done has led him to stop loving you. You are, however, and I am as well, a sinner. And our sin separates us from a holy and perfect God. Knowing that, he came and lived a perfect life among us and died on the cross paying for our sins so that anyone who would put their faith and trust in him would be given a gift of salvation an eternity with him in heaven, and a life of meaning and purpose here on this planet. With that knowledge, I would ask you today, if you've never done it before, to say, Jesus, I trust you. Please come into my life. Please forgive my sins. Please be my Savior and Lord. Please make me the kind of person that you want me to be. 
I put my faith and my trust in you. The Bible says that the moment you take that step, genuinely putting your faith and trust in him, he literally does come into your life, adopting you into his family. You literally will have an eternity with him in heaven, and you literally will be able to experience a life of meaning and purpose here on earth. If you've never taken that step before, I hope you'll take it this morning. Well, I'd like to invite you to First Baptist this morning. They meet on the southeast corner of East 3rd Avenue and 11th Street. They'll be meeting at 1045 a.m. Again, that's the southeast corner of East 3rd Avenue and 11th Street, and they'll be meeting at 1045 a.m. Get all of our previous shows at GodSolutionShow.com, and please let us know what you think. We appreciate your comments and questions. Remember, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. And that's my hope, that you'll find him this morning, if you haven't already. And if you do know him, I hope that you would grow closer to him every day. Thanks so much for listening. Have a wonderful Sunday.